Coming to you from the Eon Project Studios, perched high atop the banks of the majestic Blackstone River. Greetings from the jewel of the Blackstone Valley. You're listening to Experts of Nothing with Mike and Jay. Hello there. Hey, Mike, what's going on? How are you? Good to see you again. I feel like I was just here. Yeah, it's almost like you never left. Almost, almost. Thank God we don't live together anymore. No. That would be bad. That would be bad. So anyway, welcome to another edition of the Eon Project where we do awesome things all the time. We do all kinds of stuff. You know, we we, li- we talk about the paranormal. We also debunk some of the paranormal as well because we like a little bit of credibility to this sort of topic. And we like to talk about other things too, not just paranormal stuff, lost history, conspiracies, right. yep. uh, interesting tidbits of news, mm. things all related to that. Absolutely. So yeah, so welcome. So last week's episode was episode two of a three-episode arc, which today is episode three. Of three. That's right. This is the climax. This is the pentuplet. The what? I don't know. Oh. Made it up. Is a, uh, uh, this is the ultimate uh, ending of our three-episode arc regarding the Amityville horror case. That's right. Last week, well, actually, let me back up. So the first week, we talked about the murders that took place. Yep. The DeFeo murders. Last week was the paranormal claims of the Lutz family and the story and the book and the movie and everything that came to be as far as that's concerned. Right. And this week, uh, you know, we're going to speak with, we're going to play a past interview with Rick Moran. Uh, and Rick Moran was is the founder of the Association for the Study of Unexplained Phenomenon. He founded that that group in 1972. Wow! And he was a journalist and investigator, a paranormal uh, aficionado. Aficionado. And he's going to talk a little bit about his experiences and his knowledge about the Amityville cases, uh, the DeFeo murders, as well as the horror uh, story. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna get to that interview in just a moment. But before we do, uh, as we as we typically do on the show, we talk about some other things, some some. Things that go on in our lives. Yep. Things that you're interested in, and we want to thank you for all the input that you've been giving us. We have been, uh, we've been steadily climbing up the charts as far as uh, reviews, people liking the show, uh, and feedback. So we want to, and I want to send out a personal plea, if I may. Okay. Uh, my personal plea is if you are if you are listening to the show and you like our show, please tell a friend, tell a relative, tell a neighbor, tell someone who you think might inter- might enjoy the show as well, because. The more people we get listening to the show, the more reviews we get. Exactly. Uh, the higher we appear on charts and whatnots, and then more people will listen to the show. So what we, we want to get is the, the the word out there that if you enjoy the show, pass it on. Don't keep it to yourself. This is not a secret. No, and you know it's not. It's a lot. It's not as easy as as one may think to garner support. It and is to not garner uh, views and listens and and things like that. You know, you go online sometimes. You see see these uh, viral videos, right. millions of hits. It's not that easy. It doesn't just happen overnight. You know, I, I think one thing that is our de- detriment is that we're not on TV. Because no. if people could see our faces, they would fall in love with us. Well, and either they that would or immediately, they, would it, they would turn it off immediately. No, we'd, we'd immediately have uh, groupies. Well, we'd actually, have followers. We were thinking about uh, delving into the world of television, at, well, at least uh, video, um, by by doing some Facebook Live uh, episodes of, of us visiting some of the places that we're talking about. Right. Maybe talking with some people. And uh, so we're probably going to get that in the works here soon. Yeah, we did. But I wanted to discuss something real quick before we get to the Rick Moran thing. And uh, as you know, we are in uh, we're at the end of September, right? Yeah, we're near the end of uh, we're near the beginning of October. Yep, the Weather, fall, weather's cooling. The fall season, the Halloween season. Mm. And I wanted to mention for those of you who are fans of this type of stuff that we talk about, you're probably already aware. Um, those of you who are not. So there's a thing out there, uh, there's a, a phenomenon, if you will, of haunted attractions around the world. Uh, of, and by that I mean places where you go and you pay some money and you walk through a haunted house and people jump out and scare you. Right. 
this has been this is not new. This has been going on for many years. But but I don't think people understand is that there's a lot of these these professional and non-professional yard haunters and things like that. They put so much time and effort into their sh- we call them shows. And, mm. I, and I know this because uh, I used to operate one myself, uh, a charity uh, haunted attraction. And uh, probably will do so again in the future. But these these people put so much time and effort. They it's a it, it truly is a year round commitment uh, to put on a good show. So I want to encourage people go out there and 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 uh, and check out a local haunted attraction in your area. I'm sure that there's a bunch. Um, find a couple, go to them, patronize them. Uh, they they do a great job. You know what they do? It's it's fun. It's entertaining. It's interesting. Um, my only hang up would be um, some of them. I because I've been to a few in my day. Some of them are really good, yep. and and they're reasonably priced. <laughs> Some of them are terrible, yeah, and they're overpriced. Well, and the know, lines out the door. I don't well, get it. Well, the the lines are out the door, obviously, because it's a, it's a it's a uh, it's something that a lot of people want to go do. But you know, the funny thing is, if you if you ran a haunted attraction in May, yeah. you wouldn't get anybody to go to it. You run the same attraction in October, you have a line out the door. It's kind of like the price gouging. Yeah, so it's it's that time of year people want to do it. But to your point, there's a lot of bad ones. Uh, that are only out for profit, and those are the ones that you see will pop up in like a storefront, mm. or you see them in a, a temporary location, and the next year they're gone. But there's a lot that these people pour their heart and soul into. There's yeah. a couple that I'm very good friends with um, that I, I, I hope to have guests on the show in the ne- in the near future to talk about their haunted house, uh, their haunted attraction, and uh, this, this, it's a couple that uh, that I am friends with that live down in Red Oak, Texas. Yeah, why don't you give them a plug? Uh, Jen and Alex. Yeah, Loman. They operate Reindeer Manor Haunted House. Haunted, haunted attraction, Reindeer Manor. It's called Reindeer Manor. Is it like? Is it? Is it a a Christmas themed? No, Halloween but you, park? Would, you would think that by listening to it. Oh. No. So Reindeer Manor actually started in the 1970s. It's one of the oldest haunted houses in America, if not the oldest. Yeah. Haunted attraction. Um, and Jen and Alex actually uh, have been doing this for a number of years. They started off doing a yard haunt, uh, meaning that they just created a, a, a small environment around their yard, and, and it subsequently grew from there. And it's become like a, a world class attraction. It's one of the scariest places I've ever been. Uh, it, it's not only is it scary because of, of the things that take place there, um, as far as the haunted attraction goes, but it's actually haunted in real life. And it's one of the only places where I've actually experienced a legit paranormal activity was in this place. Really? So I hope to have Jen and Alex on at some point to talk about their show that this is the time of year where they literally have no time. They're busy 24 yeah. seven trying to get their show going. Um, but we would have, we'd like to have them on, check them out. Reindeermanor.com. If you, if you live in Texas, please check them out, go down there, tell them that Jay and Mike sent you. And they'll give you a hug or something. Yeah, they will. They'll bring you backstage and... Uh, well, hopefully not. Oh, maybe. They're going to tune you up a little bit. Oh, could be. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Yeah, no, that's a good plug. And, uh, you know, get out there and support your local businesses. Support your local haunt. Absolutely. So I think what we're going to do now is we're going to uh, get back into playing the interview with Rick Moran. And, and, you know, God rest his soul, Rick actually passed away a few years ago. But Mike and I were fortunate and lucky enough to interview him. And actually, this was our very first... Yeah, I don't know how we got this guy. This was our... Me either. This was our very first interview that we did on show number one, I believe. Or no, no maybe show two. it was two. two or three, yeah. Something like that of when we were doing a AM radio program. And as you can tell, our uh, skills are uh, less than stellar. Not as good as they are now. But um, Rick likes to talk, so he, he kind of carried the interview for us. Which but is good for us. It was interesting and enlightening and, and basically being able to talk to somebody firsthand that was that directly involved with the, the Amityville case. Right. So I'm basically only two degrees separated from James Brolin. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, you know the, the, the Kevin Bacon game? Oh yeah, where you, you have to you you have to be connected to somebody via six links or less uh, from Kevin Bacon. I'm connected two links to Kevin Bacon. I'm connected zero links to Kevin Bacon How's because that? I appeared in a movie with Kevin Bacon in it. Which movie was that? I was in Patriots Day. 
Oh, that's he was in that. He was. He played an FBI investigator. Oh, that's right. He was. And I, I played very, very famously. Yeah. A uh, Massachusetts state trooper. You get to see the back of your head. You can see the back of my head, and you can clearly hear me yelling expletives at Mark Wahlberg. So I want you to check out Patriots Day. It's about uh, an hour and thirty six minutes in. Mm. You can briefly see me. You can definitely hear me, and it's uh, not fit for children's ears. No, definitely not. I do. I do uh, yell some uh, some expletives. So here we go. We're going to play the the interview with Rick Moran, and we'll be back after this. So stay tuned. Long time ago, me and my brother Kyle here. We was hitchhiking down a long and lonesome road. All of a sudden, there shined a shiny demon in the middle of the road. Welcome back to The Darker Side with Mike and Jay. Before we went to the break... Uh, we're trying to lay a little background uh, as to the actual murders that took place at, at 112 Ocean Avenue uh, in Amityville, New York. So let me go ahead and give you the phone line, phone numbers again real quick. There's 766-1380, 769-0600, and if you're outside the area, you can call at 1-800-949-9674. So right now what we're going to do is we're going to bring uh, Rick Moran on the, on the line. Uh, Rick Moran is from the Association for the Study of Unexplained Phenomena. Uh, in 1972, Rick helped uh, form ASUP in New York City. Uh, ASUP was actually re- uh, recruited to investigate claims in the Jay Anson book entitled "The Amityville Horror," that uh, 112 Ocean Avenue, excuse me, Ocean Avenue was indeed haunted by demonic forces. Uh, they spent two years uh, investigating that case to include the actual murders as well as the claims uh, by the Lutz family that were terrorized by unseen forces. So let me see if we got Rick on the line here. Hi, Rick, are you there? Yes, sir. How are you doing tonight, sir? Very good. Good, good. Um, we're going to get right into this, Rick. I know we don't have a whole lot of time, so we're going to try to get as much information out there as we can. Um, so where are you Where are you based out of right now, Rick? I'm in a little town in uh, East Texas okay. uh, called, called Wills Point. Wills Point. And, and, and uh, ASUP's uh, Texas office we base out of here, and we have about... 50 field investigators. Okay, so about 50 cases a year. ASUP or ASUP is, is still active in, in paranormal investigations then? It certainly is. So it's uh, continuous since 1972 when they when they were formed? or? That's right. Okay. So I would place you in the uh, in the very, very small minority of, of groups that have been around for a, a very long time. Well, you know, there are ghost hunters and then there are paranormal investigators. I'd like to think we're in the second group. Well, that's probably uh, safe to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, but just, just you know, uh, talking about that real quick, so would you say that what you do is, is slightly different than what, uh, what we see nowadays with the, you know, the prevalence of a lot of these, uh, you know, so-called ghost hunting reality show type things? I mean, is there, is, there, like, is there a difference in what you do as opposed to what they do? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the, uh, first of all, we've had, you know, more than 35 years to hone our skills. Right. And, and our methodology, so uh, I think that we do it do it pretty well. Um, you know, we're not going out into the field is a lot of fun, but it's only about twenty percent of what we do. Right. And, uh, we accept members, you know, who come in and say, "I really want to learn how to do this." And some of them last a couple of years, some of them last ten years, some of them are still with us. Um, but there's a lot of work that's involved. Uh, reporting, uh, uh, report writing, uh, the uh, the research that's involved in, in doing this, uh, uh, the uh, the concept of uh, dividing things up into different types of hypotheses, and then after you've 
ruled out all the rest. If what's left is paranormal, then we hit gold. So you would you would say that you go about it in a more kind of a scientific, uh, basically like kind of like a police approach in terms of your investigating. Well, that was always the argument. The argument from the very beginning was that uh, uh, going back to the days of uh, you know the, the Duke University studies. Uh, uh, so by uh, uh, yeah, I had a couple of friends that you know were down at Duke, and I I went down there several times uh, as a reporter, and I argued that the person who should be out doing field work is either a cop or an investigator reporter because they know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't take a PhD who's used to working in a lab and put him out into a haunted house because he's looking for empiric proof, which isn't going to happen. And I can imagine that a lot of that, uh, the investigative reporter and the police skills would be in the, in the area of interviewing and determining the, the, uh, the veracity of people's statements and looking into to the reasons behind saying what they're saying. It's a, it's a mixture of being able to do really, really good research, and then after you have that research, to be able to do uh, one-on-ones with people, and not just hear what they have to say, but to read things like body language, you know, um, and uh, asking the same question five different ways to see if you get the same answer. You definitely get a lot of that looking at a, at a Butch DeFeo interview. Uh, Butch would be an interesting case study if you were just going to study him as, from a criminologist's point of view. I mean, my degree is in sociology. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's an interesting character because he changes his story so many times. Right. Just so we can get a feel for what, what it, you know, to kind of bring us back to the, the time frame of when, when the murders uh, took place, um, when did you first hear about the DeFeo murders, and was it, at the time, was it a national story, you know, as it would be today? Obviously, you know, there's a lot of mass now, murders, unfortunately. I, I first heard about the DeFeo murders from a desk um, editor at a newspaper that I was stringing for who said, go to Amityville, because they just had a mass murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was out on the street that night with uh, with some of the people who later became prime players in this whole story. Uh, um, uh, Paul Hoffman, who, who worked for the New York Daily News, was there. Uh, he later was asked to write the book Amityville Horror and turned it down and ended up in court with uh, the, uh, uh, the Lutz family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joel Martin from WBAB Radio, another guy who was very instrumental when we first started ASUP, he was the news director for WBAB. And we were all out on the sidewalk watching them take out the body bags. Right. So, so you, I mean, obviously, it, it was almost physically impossible to get involved in the case earlier, unless you oh, happened yeah. to be there that night. No, <laughs> unless you happened to be, you know, across the street when it happened, no. Or in the house. <laughs> um, can you give us a little background on, on the DeFeo family themselves and, and the, the personality makeups of of the people within the family, and, and just to kind of set the uh, the tone here for why the murders might have t- taken place? Well, you have um, Mr. DeFeo, Ron DeFeo Sr., mm-hmm. who was a brute, and he uh, admittedly uh, made, uh, made a point of brutalizing his family. Uh, we have Mrs. DeFeo, who uh, was suffering from, for want of a better term, Stockholm Syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had uh, four kids. Okay, uh, the twins were were young. I can't talk about them because there's no history. Uh, and the, the two older children, which is Ronnie Jr., who, who's called Butch, and of course uh, Dawn DeFeo, his his younger sister. And uh, 
Ronnie was a drug head and uh, escapist and a bully and like his father and uh, also a braggart. He liked to tell people that the family was involved with the mob. Right. Actually, that was my next question. There's some speculation that Ronnie DeFeo Sr. was, was involved in, in mafia and drug-dealing drug type activities because the, uh, the, his father and the wife's father were, were supposedly uh, heavy into the mafia. Is there, is there any truth to that at all? Or? They owned a car dealership which sold cars to the mafia. Mm -hmm. if That's you connected. Want. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't make you a player. You know? Right. No, I, I, I have some... At the time, I had some very, very close friends who uh, who knew the mob inside and out. There was no real connection there. So they were it basically, was, they just basically like to invoke the name of the mob for, for social respect? Yeah, well, you know, you play the game. You uh, you talk the talk. Yeah, you know, like, I got these friends down in Brooklyn. They'll hit you for 10 <laughs> cents, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. But, you know, was he a player? No, he really wasn't. I mean, the closest Ronnie DeFeo Jr. got to anybody in the mob was he would get to drive a mobster's car to the mobster's house after they finished fixing it at the car dealership. So, so there's, no, there's no truth to the fact that then that, because uh, I know one of the theories put out there originally uh, was that, it, you know, it was a mafia-involved kind of hit. Well, from the very beginning, Ron, uh, Butch came up with this convoluted story which he told the police, which was, he even gave the name of a hitman. Unfortunately, the hitman he named was in jail that week. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was sure that it was a hit to, uh, you know, to get the drugs and money out of the house, blah, 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 blah. but it wasn't there. It really wasn't there. Now there was some, there was some, uh, some speculation that, and this is one of the more, um, one of the claims that's not widely known, and I believe that you may have some information on that. That that the DeFeos may have actually been under investigation by the federal government at the time of the murders. The DeFeos were of interest. Uh, or Ronnie was of interest uh, with the DEA because he was making claims all over, you know, Southern Long Island that, you know, the family was involved. He, he spun an interesting story. He was into boats. They had a boat, uh, a boathouse and a connected garage. And he, cr he created this story that he would take the boat out on the Great South Bay and meet a, a ship and, uh, and get drugs there and then bring it in to the boathouse, transfer it to a car, and of course then you don't have probable cause because you don't see anything being transferred, which is all very nice and very neat, except that it came right out of the bootlegger days. Mm -hmm. you know, if, if we were back in the bootlegger days, that would have been a good story, but it didn't fit. You know, drug dealers don't bring ships into the Great South Bay so the little speedboats can come down and get <laughs> it. They just bring it in by the truckload. So would there be any truth to the... Uh, uh to the allegation that maybe there was even surveillance being done of the DeFeo home on the night of the murder. The, the story is the story is just that. It's a story. Uh, I first was told of it by a DEA person uh, who swore that, you know, that there was a, an operative outside the house on the night of the murder and had seen uh, Dawn come out of the house uh, with... Uh, the package that looked like a rifle and drive out to the end of the peninsula where, of course, the murder weapon was re then recovered later on and then went back into the house, um, which would mean that she was alive when everybody else was dead. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an interesting story, but again, it's anecdotal because it never made it into the record book. 
Uh, and it was being made by a couple of agents who said, you know, that they believed that it was true and that, the, uh, uh, that this is what had happened. That's an interesting uh, take on the story when, obviously, originally it was just thought that uh, Butch had committed uh, all the murders himself, and then some of the stories that you read where he Butch went ahead and killed the mother and father, and then basically Dawn did the rest of the dirty work and everybody, killed the children. Everybody has a different version of the story. Right, okay? right. The, the version of the story that I tend towards, if I were going to lean towards just one version, the, the version that, that, that fits, okay, is the one that originally this was a conspiracy with, uh, with Dawn and, uh, and Ronnie to, to murder the parents. Uh, that would leave uh, Ronnie, Dawn, and the two boys and the one little girl uh, to live happily ever after. The despot would be dead, you know. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the version that I subscribe to, uh, on the night when it was supposed to happen, Ronnie got stoned and couldn't get out of a chair. He was watching TV. Uh, the show on was um, uh, The Keep, mm-hmm. and he was watching the TV show. This is all going back to claims that he made to the police when he, was, when he finally admitted you know, that he was involved in this. Um, he said that uh, a hooded demon came to him with gloves on and his rifle and said go shoot them and but he couldn't get out of the chair so the demon went upstairs and shot the mother and father and uh, there was a whole bunch of shooting and the next thing he knew he uh, he went upstairs and saw that the parents were dead but also found out that the uh, that the boys were dead and the little girl was dead now that's the story that he gave all right, well, that leaves Dawn as, as the possible. And that's where that anecdotal story seems to tie in, okay? Uh, why would she do that? I have no idea. Wasn't there some, uh, there, was a, there was a report that there had been a, a forensic test done on Dawn's uh, night clothes and that she did have some, some powder residue? Oh, that's true. Yeah, Dawn's night, uh, nightgown had powder burns on the right shoulder, which would be uh, consistent with, uh, with a long gun being fired, but, but uh, that that avenue was not was not pursued by the police at the time because they had a confession. Well, first of all, you have to understand something. You're talking about the Suffolk County Police Department in the 1970s, which in itself was not exactly the cleanest place in the world. And this was an easy in and out. Let's get this done. We've got a bunch of you know dead bodies, and we have to find somebody charged with it. And they wanted to put it to rest. And he was there, so what the hell? Now, of course, later on, right to this day, Ronnie and his wife are, are suing, uh, are constantly, you know, in court trying to get a, a reversal, uh, simply because, you know, Dawn has now broken, <laughs> uh, no, intended, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> if Ronnie had said, I killed Dawn, I didn't kill anybody else, I just killed Dawn. And he pled to just one murder. He'd be out, a free man right now. Mm-hmm. But because, after talking to his grandfather, um, he copped the plea for all of them, uh, he's in jail for forever. Because New York State just doesn't like mass murders on the street. So he was probably convinced to probably not bring any more shame upon the family by, <laughs> you know... You know, one of the one of the dead that siblings. Was, that, 
that was the claim made by a police officer who was standing outside the door when his grandfather walked in and slapped him in the face and said, enough of this, stop dragging the family through the mud. You did it, admit it to it. So is there, is there any truth to the, uh, to the idea, and I know you mentioned earlier that uh, there was the idea that Dawn and Butch, after the murder of the parents, were going to basically take over as the, the, the matriarch and patriarch of the family. Is it true that, they, that there were claims that they, that they had an incestuous relationship between the two of them? A couple of Dawn's girlfriends said that that was a possibility. Uh, I never found anybody who's a friend of Ronnie's who said that. Ronnie was a was a was a player by today's standards. Uh, he had uh, he had a fiance. He had a girlfriend. Uh, you know, he, he made passes and anything that moved. Um, I I don't know. You know, it, it, I, I've heard that over and over and over and over again. Uh, I even heard it uh, once from. Um, Bill Weber, who was his attorney, right, and it's alluded to that uh, in in the movies and and e- even in some some films that were supposedly inspired by this, these events that, that that may have been going on. But I, uh, I haven't read anything concrete about it. Um, one of the things that that bothers me slightly is, I mean, all the bodies were generally found in the same positioning. I mean, how could how could that have happened? I, I mean, Nobody decided to. Nobody thought they should flee the house. Okay, here, here's here's the scenario as it as it plays out in my mind. Uh, Butch and Dawn agree that we're going to get rid of mom and dad. We have to get rid of dad because you know he's brutalizing the entire family. Uh, mom is a basket case, so she's going to be no help, and she's only going to be a hindrance. So we're going to do mom and dad. Okay. They probably told the kids that they were going to do it. This is probably a much larger conspiracy within the family. And uh, so when the first shots go off, taking out mom and dad, the kids don't react to it at all. Uh, now, it isn't true that they were all, you know, laying face down in bed. Uh, in the boys' room, one boy was face down in bed. Now, the other one, who had a broken leg, uh, was obviously trying to reach out to a pair of crutches to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And his body really wasn't, was kind of hanging out of the bed. And the little girl, of course, was, uh, was in bed. Mm-hmm. We have no idea what the order was here. Was there any, uh, well, I, I, can, I can say that I haven't heard any reports of, of neighbors hearing any of the shots. Was, was there any evidence that any kind of silencing device or, or an attempt to silence the weapon might have been made? No, not at all. But the house is pretty, is pretty tight. Uh, we tested that way back when uh, because I was interested in that mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the one time that we were in the house I put some blanks into uh, my off-duty revolver and fired it and nobody heard anything outside you could see the muzzle flash mm-hmm. through the windows if you were looking but, but this would have been in 3 in the morning and there wouldn't have been anyone looking there wouldn't be anybody looking except for our theoretical, uh, you know, informant sitting out on the street for the DEA, uh, which is anecdotal because we don't have corroboration that that actually happened. But, you know, that was the claim. Uh, the, the other thing is that uh, Ronnie used to use the, uh, the, the basement as, an, as a target range. He was a gun nut. So it wouldn't have been surprised to somebody's ears if they did hear shooting. Right. Hmm. 
Well, that's interesting. Getting back to, to the events leading up to the murders, uh, if we could for just a moment, I know that, that there have been some reports that, that Ronnie had actually uh, pointed a loaded shotgun at his father uh, just a, a, a short time before the actual uh, murders during a fight between Louise and, and, and Ronnie Sr. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, has that been corroborated independently? No. Okay. No. I've and, heard the story, but I, no, yeah. I, can't, I can't corroborate that. It, it, would it surprise me? It would only surprise me that he'd be doing it with a shotgun because he did have a permit for, for a handgun. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if, we, if we subscribe to the theory that, that Dawn was actually involved uh, in the killings herself, why did she end up herself getting killed in the end? Total rage. The one thing that we do know about Butch DeFeo was that he adored his little baby sister, mm-hmm. the youngest. I, uh, you know, and, and again, you know, this is all theoretical, but he goes upstairs, he sees mom and dad. Dad, well, that was the plan. Then he walks inside and sees the twins shot, and it's like, what the hell did you do? And then he walks in and sees the little girl shot, and uh, the theory is that he took her upstairs and shot her with his handgun. That's why the ballistics on Dawn's bodily injuries are not, do not match the other family members, because she used a long gun, a rifle. Right. He used a handgun. And, 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 when um, they asked him what did he do with the gun that he shot Dawn with, he says he threw it out into the river. But they were looking for a rifle. Not a handgun. They never found it. And, and in most mass murders of this type, that w- would it be it would be consistent for the murderer to use the same weapon for everyone if that's what if that's in fact what happened. If in fact it was it was in line, yeah, at the same period of time. Now, now you, maybe you can clarify this. I, they did find uh, the police did find by going on, on Butch's word that he, uh, he dumped his clothes in a, in a storm drain as well as some of the empty shell casings from, from the rifle. Is, is that not true? I don't know about the shell casings. I know about the clothing. The okay. clothing was dumped out in Brooklyn. Okay. Hmm. Um, again, it doesn't seem like it's, it's out of the realm of possibility that this is, is a domestic abuse situation that ultimately ends in, um, in patricide, but just the added killing of the kids which is i think really what the crux of the of what makes this a tragedy as great a tragedy as it was whereas um when you see interviews with butch he he readily admits to killing the parents and it's when when discussing the murder of the children that he uh he's obviously upset by it he he, he's ashamed of it if he in fact did it and and that seems to be the the point of contention with him right and from the very beginning People in the Amityville Police Department, who of course knew Butch intimately because he had been a troublemaker, um, readily admitted that he was a hothead and shooting dad and mom wouldn't be a big thing, but they questioned whether he would actually shoot his siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, since part two of the show next week, we're going we're gonna to focus on the, uh, you know, the famous paranormal Amityville case that, that mo- <laughs> most of the people know about. Uh, you, you're laughing at that, sir. <laughs> um, basically, what, I'm, what I want to ask to kind of maybe set a little tone for that next week, um, it, obviously there's different theories of going as far as that's concerned, and we're not going to go into it too much now, but uh, do you believe personally the story that, uh, that there was actually an evil that, that permeated that house prior to the DeFeos uh, because of a history of you know, Native American torture and, and death on that particular property? Well, for starters, the book is a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
And, for instance, the Indians that supposedly were there uh, lived on the east end of Long Island. They would have not walked 70 miles to dump their aged infirmed right. in Amityville. Uh, there weren't any Indians there. Um, there's stories about uh, the Ketchum family. Ketchum is a, you know, if you live on Long Island, if you live on the North Shore of Long Island, uh, Ketchum is a well-known historic figure, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, he was he was not a witch. He didn't run away from Salem, you know. I mean, all of that is 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 filler and folderol, okay? And it, and it fits a predictable mold for books that were written in that genre at that time, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, when in doubt, you're running short. Your publisher wants 200 pages, and you got 160. What do you do? Well, we talk about Native Americans and long dead people. Okay. And, and this, this, these books were written at a time in the, in the 1970s when The Exorcist was huge at the box office, and, and the, theor- the, the uh, theory surrounding. Well, people don't, you know, people don't understand. Jay Anson worked on the film The Exorcist. Okay, he was a screenwriter for The Exorcist. So if you see any common, you know, connection there, it's because, you know, that was his that was his thing. But you know, Jay Anson and I got to be really good friends after all of this. And you know, Jay finally said to me once, and this is a conversation that happened in the Twenty One Club. We were about to go to NBC to do the last show about Amityville after a year of road shows, and we sat there. And he says, "Rick, you know what your problem is?" I said, "No." He says, you're missing the basics here. He says, I'm a writer, you're a journalist. You want to corroborate everything. I don't have to corroborate anything. Mm -hmm. My intention was to build a house in Mallorca. Yours was to tell the truth. (laughs) Incompatible. Well, do you we think we finished our steak dinners, went across the street, and did the lunch? <laughs> do you think that maybe the, the the reason one of the reasons behind the the the, the jump to uh, blaming a lot of this on demons and the paranormal and ghosts and whatnot is because people find it hard to believe that a normal person or a, a human being would actually do that to their family. No, the intention was from the very beginning. Bill Weber wanted someone to write a book that would say that the Lutzes were chased out of the house by a demon. You see, I told you so, there's a demon in the house, and Ronnie was under the influence of a demon when he committed the murders, therefore he was not mentally stable, therefore it's time to give him a new trial. Mm-hmm. Wasn't William Weber actually in, 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 a, in, a, in a somewhat of a deal to, to write a different book besides Jay Anson's book uh, with the Lutz family? Yeah. The original book was supposed to be written... Uh, he introduced them to Paul Hoffman. Now, unfortunately, he did not realize that Paul Hoffman was a member of ASUP at the time. So Paul went to the meeting, and over several bottles of wine, they looked through the the murder scene photos, the forensic photos. And that's where things like the green slime came from. Uh, Kathy Lutz looking at a photo, uh, a color photo, uh, by the crime scene, and... In those days, they used graphite to be able to lift fingerprints. So they, when flash hits graphite, it comes up green. So she says, oh, what's that green slime? And it was Paul Hoffman who said, no, that's graphite, it's just the way it photographs. Because he was a crime scene reporter, first and foremost. And then, you know, and it goes right down the line where all of these claims came from. And it was all concocted over 
you know, a couple of bottles of wine. Well, much later on, there was a lawsuit, and they brought Paul into court, and the judge in the case uh, in the New York State Supreme Court turned around and found, uh, quote-unquote, Amityville Horror is a work of fiction created originally over several bottles of good red wine and some crime scene photos. So those of, those that are listening that are not familiar, uh, the Lutz family, George and Kathy Lutz, are, are the people that moved in uh, a year after the DeFeo murders. And it's it's widely believed, some people that obviously that don't know the, the complete facts, that the Lutzes didn't actually know about the murder prior to move in. But obviously we know that that we, we obviously know that that's not that's not true. They 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 did they did know what occurred in that house. Oh, of course they did. Right. They like, lived in Deer Park. Everybody on Long Island knew about the the DeFeo murders. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we're, we're, we are going to discuss this next week too. But but for for your appearance, Rick, if um, what what do you make of the uh, of the uh, the claims by the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine, about the, uh, the their their claims? And, and this 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 case really was their uh, bedrock for a career in this in paranormal investigation. Yeah, sure was. That <laughs> it was it was a, it was a dog and pony show. Okay, and that's how I got involved in this. Uh, basically. They invited a field researcher from the uh, Psychical Research Foundation at Duke. Uh, They said, would you like to see the house? And he said, yeah, I'd love to see the house. They didn't tell him there was a press conference that night. So he and two friends came up to the house, and here are all the lights on, and everybody's squeezed into this little room, and there's Ed Lorraine Warren and Hans Holzer and a whole bunch of other quote-unquote, prominence. And they were told to sit down, and they sat down. And, you know, a year later, here's Jay Anson saying in the preface of the original copy of the book that all of this is true because the PRF was there. And who would question something, you know, that happened in the eyes of Duke University? Mm-hmm. And that's how I got involved. You know, I had... Uh, uh, Scott Rogo and I had debated at Duke long before this, you know, the whole concept of who do you put out in the field? Do you put PhDs or do you put seasoned investigators who understand investigating like cops and reporters? I obviously argued for one. Uh, He argued for the other. Well, unfortunately, what happened at that press conference is they got themselves a lab rat you know, who wasn't, who certainly wouldn't have made a comment because he didn't investigate anything, okay? But his very presence suggested some claim to it being all true. And that got Bill Roll very upset at Duke University. And uh, the word came out, can you prove that this book is a sham? And so six of us dedicated a good portion of our lives to proving at initially, 118 claims that were impossible, okay? And uh, and then after that, pretty much, I mean, you can open up any page of the book. I can explain to you where it came from at this point. Right. Uh, n- now, you would say that, obviously, uh, all the, the claims made by the Lutzes, were, were they, um, you know, was, was that something that they thought moving in that they were going to they were going to try to pull some sort of scam or that you really well, there's, think- some, there's some question i mean you, you know you got to start at the beginning how long were they there some people say a month some people say 10 days some people say three days 
Some people say they never really moved in. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that it was their intention mm-hmm. to, to, you know, try to make a buck off of this. And it worked out very well. You know, I'll, say, I'll tell you this. In all of the programs that I've done about Amityville, I'm used to getting, when they have call-ins, somebody will call up and say, why are you saying these terrible things about George and Kathy Lutz? And they go on to tell you what saints these people were. And usually my, my response, rather than trying to, you know, it's kind of hard to debunk a saint, so I turn around and say, look, how old are you? You know, and they'll say, oh, I'm 22. I said, your parents weren't old enough to mate <laughs> when this case happened. Right. What well, do you know about it? You know. Well, it's not hard to believe. I can tell you the truth, but that doesn't mean you're not going to read the book and have be scared half to death. And it doesn't. It th- that doesn't mean uh, also that they weren't. They, they intended to. Yes, maybe they were going to exaggerate some claims to maybe get out from a mortgage, maybe make some dollars. But th- their initial claims were 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 uh, taken and run with by exuberant members of the media. Uh, by created by a producer. A young producer, a young female producer, who wanted to make her name on this. Boy, do I have a story for you guys, okay? And then inviting every one of the game players to to sign on, including, you know, Ed and Lorraine. Now, that, that's not to say that, I mean, obviously, there was a tragedy that, that, that took place in the home, and that's not to say that there couldn't be some sort of... Uh, you know, residual energy that, that lingers in the home. Nobody um, ever asked us that. Right. <laughs> you, they were just... Was there? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I was... <laughs> I was at a, a Halloween party uh, after, you know, all of the brouhaha. And um, we, we, were, we were in the house. And there was much... Uh, much partying and, you know, a couple hundred guests in the whole nine yards. And people were actually coming to the door, you know, who were not invited, who said, can I come in and see the house? You know, one of those deals. Mm-hmm. And we're all making jokes about this. And uh, uh, Steve Kaplan, who was one of the researchers, and, uh, uh, and Joel Martin and I were, were all sitting there and BSing back and forth. And... You know, we're, 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 you know, pretty much saying, boy, what a load of, you know, they sold, okay? About a half an hour later, I'm out in the kitchen with one of the original members of the ASUP, who is a PhD, who also happened to be psychic. And she said to me, you know, after it's all said and done, there is something in this house. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it's a horned demon, okay? It doesn't mean that it's something that would drive you berserk, nor is it a 101-piece brass band in your living room at 3 o'clock in the morning. No, but it would be consistent with a residual-type haunting. But it certainly would be consistent. Okay. But nobody ever asked that. You're the first person who's ever asked. Well, thank you. We we we, we like to do first things on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, uh, I, I hate I hate to cut this uh, this conversation short here, but unfortunately, uh, we only have an hour slotted, and right. I I know that uh, 
I know that we only asked you to be on this hour, and uh, you don't have to give us an answer right now, but <laughs> we'd love for you to join us next week uh, and maybe talk a little bit about the actual, uh, some more myths of all, you know, surrounding the actual Amityville horror uh, mm-hmm. itself. So um, is there anything else you'd like to say right now uh, bef- before, we, uh, before we get going here tonight? No, anybody, anybody wants to know anything more about my group, the ASUP, uh, I welcome them to go to www.asup-inc.org. And you will find uh, a surprising website for most people because most people used to go on a website and they have two or three pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, our website is closer to 300. Okay. Now we talk about old cases, new cases, methodology, the whole nine yards. All right, Rick, so, uh, we, we certainly appreciate that. And if you want to give your website out one more time for uh, www.asup-inc.org. All right, Rick, uh, thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Rick, and, and obviously well-informed on the subject, uh, to say the least. And we'll be in okay. touch. Thank you. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. All right, so that was the interview with Rick Moran, circa 2009. You sound like a child, like a little baby. I did. Well, you know what it is? That's the AM. Uh, yeah. We were in a was, studio with, like... It was tinny. It was old. <laughs> it was an old-style uh, radio station. You know, I met, we've mentioned this before on the air, but, yeah. it, but that experience was, was, was generally... Just weird. It was a weird experience to have a radio show. We were there for about a year mm. uh, doing that radio show, and we literally had a key to the station. We used to go, come and go as we pleased. That was the most weird of all is that we went in there, yeah. and we told them what kind of show we wanted to do, and yep. they immediately gave us a key. They said, that's fine. They didn't ask what our names were. Didn't, nope. Didn't have anything written out. We could have went on there and started screaming expletives at the top of our lungs. We could have stole everything out of the studio. Well, there wasn't much known. in there that was... Uh, you know what? One of the one of the most fond memories of the radio station was they, they had those old-style phones yeah. with the buttons that you had to press... All the way, like the uh, the different line buttons, yeah. you'd press all the way and it'd go. It looks like a mechanical. I couldn't button. figure out the phones. People would call in. I'd hang you up. You would on hang them. up on them. Yeah, that you know why the, the the technology was so rudimentary. It was uh, it was it was blowing my mind. It we was didn't confusing. have call screeners. We used to get random calls from people. We didn't know what they were going to talk about. They would just and it was live, so they would just get on the air and start talking. Yeah, we never knew what anybody was. Had a dump say. button, but I didn't know how to use that either. No, and everything was run by like pulleys and and uh, cables and and. But you know what? It was an interesting experience to say the least. I'd never done anything like that before, and uh, look where we are today. We're we're in somebody's basement. All right, so that was the interview with Rick Moran. We're going to be back next week, maybe maybe next with a week guest with a guest interview, uh, paranormal interview, and uh, we're going to get that going, and we'll continue with the knowledge and nonsense. Check us out on the web at theeonproject.com, and also on Twitter and MySpace. And just remember, I just said MySpace. You did? You did say MySpace. <laughs> I said it on purpose to see if anyone. Oh my god, that was awesome back in the day. Thank you. All right, the truth exists. Believe it. Okay.